ENTSC for thee, but not for me. This week, Scona Pool may be closing, but the mayor wants outdoor pools open longer. Plus, both regional transit and a six-story apartment building in Glenora may be on the chopping block. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 189. You may have noticed we weren't in your feed last week. Mac, how are you feeling? Well, I'm on the mend, uh, but the concoction of viruses that come from daycare got the better of me last week. It wasn't COVID, though. It wasn't COVID, thankfully. Tested negative multiple times for COVID. So somehow, magically, I've managed to escape that throughout the pandemic, but not all of the other germs that made it into the house. Well, of course, laughter is the best medicine. So here are some bad jokes. Edmonton Oilers owner Daryl Cates has increased his net worth by over a billion dollars in the past year, moving him a couple hundred slots upward on the Forbes ranking of billionaires. Cates' successful pharmacy business, entertainment properties, and real estate holdings were cited as major sources of income, but not published was the true source of his significant windfall, his super warehouse full of catalytic converters. An 8-meter-high digital billboard has been approved for use on 109th Street and 100th Ave downtown after the appeal board overruled Edmonton's rejection of the permit. While the city argued that the billboard was harmful to businesses and residents in the area, the board ruled that while the 2.5-story billboard did project into residences, the residential buildings were 15 stories, and that's more than 2.5. The board ruled that the billboard should continue to project until its permit expires in 2027, and all that ad space has already been purchased until that point, meaning the billboard will, for the next half decade, cycle through the same three ads for Go Auto, the UCP's gas tax rebate, and Terry Perinich. The Edmonton Police Service, with an annual budget of around 416,000 catalytic converters or so, has offered up a cash prize of about 42 catalytic converters to an Edmontonian who can reduce catalytic converter theft. Said the EPS in a release, quote, Catalytic converters are very valuable and easy to steal. All one has to do is slip underneath a car easily unnoticed and saw off the valuable part, either with a hacksaw or even quicker with a battery-powered tool. You can get them at Home Depot instantly and probably even steal a catalytic converter right in the parking lot. Anyone can do it. It's only a bit harder than making a bomb, which involves getting together fertilizer, a detonator, and... Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. And this year's focus is on making ends meet in Edmonton. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org. Mac, last episode, we were wrong. Both you and I said that council would do like council has always done and keep Scona Pool open despite administration's pressure to close the neighborhood pool. And, well, we were wrong. Yeah, I guess this city council really does like to do things its own way, and they decided to accept the recommendation from administration to close the pool. So the uh, 65-year-old Scona Pool will close for good at some point because of the safety risk that it poses to the public, and I suppose council not wanting to spend the money to keep repairing it for another five years. I think the difference this time around is city lawyers got involved. City lawyers made it very clear that there was significant structural damage and that there was a risk to users of the pool of 
say the roof collapsing or the structure mm-hmm. failing at this point because the city knows about it it would be gross negligence and that's not something that the city lawyers wanted to take on no i think that's probably one of the factors i do think even though we talked about this last episode that the future replacement for the pool which is the raleigh miles recreation center had another big uh, factor in this decision i know it's not you know, for several years yet. It doesn't even have funding to to build the rest of it. But, you know, the mayor used that in his comments, right? He basically said, you know, we're sorry to disappoint many people, but this is the responsible thing to do. And, you know, we're going to continue to put the money into Raleigh Miles instead of continuing to try and support the maintenance of this building that is going to go away at some point. So, you know, it doesn't help the people in the meantime in the community, but they did kind of dangle the Raleigh Miles carrot as as a way to soften the blow here. So with that, Sconepool reaches the end of an era. It was a long era full of fights every, every budget season. It is now over and people in the community can relax, but not in the pool. (laughs) Well, now the fights can shift to being about the Rolly Miles because the mayor said that he will push to try and expedite funding for that project in the upcoming uh, four-year budget cycle. But of course, we know this is going to be a very challenging budget. There's already very, very, very little room for council to maneuver. So how realistic that is and how many of his colleagues get on board with that idea remains to be seen. Of course, Mayor Zoe has been talking a lot about pools in the past couple of weeks. Just last week, we decided to keep the pools open over the Labor Day long weekend. Pools were set to close at the start of September, but there was such a nice warm long weekend that the pools stayed open just a little bit longer to get that last eakling of summer out. Mayor Sohi has brought a motion towards council and it was approved to bring forward a funding package to extend the outdoor pool season all the way from May to September going forward. Yeah, so that's kind of what used to happen, right? Pools would open earlier and stay open a bit later. Administration changed that for various reasons. And so this will be yet another thing that council debates during the upcoming budget uh, discussions. You know, some of those pools, as you said, were kept open over the long weekend. Some of them, like the Borden Natural Park Swimming Pool, closed as scheduled. The mayor says he's heard from a lot of people about this reduction in access, both at the start of the season and the end of the season. I think more people were talking about it this summer because of how hot it was throughout the summer, right? And having those outdoor pools accessible is a way for everybody to, to cool off. So it seems likely that this will go ahead and that council will approve funding to extend the, the outdoor pool season in future years. Of course, it's also just a really big shame to have a season from June to September. It's very short. And when we've invested so much capital dollars into these outdoor pools, we've in many cases fought to keep these outdoor pools open. To have them open so few days in the year and to ignore our summer season earlier on by not being able to enjoy the outdoor pool. It's a shame and I'm excited to see this go forward. I think this is going to be the story of the next budget season where we may see some increases in funding to get more from what we have. I'm thinking in the same way with snow clearing. You know, we currently have a bunch of capital equipment for snow clearing that we just don't have the operating money to staff. So to get the best value for our already existing investments may require some additional funding, but I think that's where council's going to be focusing their efforts. Let's get the best value for what we already have and then maybe build some new stuff. Interesting. Yeah, that could be a storyline for sure. Of course, council is still building some new stuff. And there was a press release this week extolling that council has absolutely eclipsed our affordable housing goals with the builds we've had in this budget season. 
Yeah, the uh, Affordable Housing Investment Program, which was launched in 2018 to help us meet these affordable housing targets, set a goal of 2,500 units of new or renovated affordable housing by the end of this calendar year, by the end of 2022. So in those four years. And Executive Committee this week approved another uh, four projects, 258 new units of affordable housing uh, for $17.6 million. So that brings us up to a total of 2,670 units over the past four years. So it's not nearly enough. It doesn't address the actual need and the gap that's out there, but it's a significant milestone in building affordable housing in Edmonton. And so these four projects, uh, most of which are in Griesbach, um, one of which is in, uh, I think it's Glenwood, take us over that target and also mean that the funding that was part of this program initially has now been used up. And so any future funding for any future affordable housing projects will need to be approved in this upcoming four-year budget cycle. And I expect, given the rhetoric we've seen from council, we absolutely will see more affordable housing. We will see more climate-focused initiatives, and we will see more services being funded rather than some austerity cuts that may have been put forward in the past council. But I think one of the other things that this really highlights is how well city council is doing on the affordable housing file in terms of capital construction. We set goals and we have eclipsed them and built more, but this is really being highlighted by especially councillors Knack and Paquette, who have both said in recent weeks that the UCP is just not coming to the table. We have units sitting empty waiting for funding dollars from the provincial government that just aren't coming. And to be honest, this seems to be making the problem a bit worse. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't build these affordable housing units. We absolutely should. But it is becoming more and more galling that we're spending money constructing these things that still aren't quite getting used. The city said uh, for every dollar of investment from the city of Edmonton on these uh, affordable housing projects, we've been able to attract $6 of outside investment. The majority of that, of course, from nonprofit organizations and housing developers and the federal government, of course, rather than the provincial government. So, you know, when there's consistent funding from the city, at least makes it possible for us to attract uh, funding from the other orders of government. Although, as you say, the province hasn't seemed keen to do that. And with huge surpluses uh, now in the province, it would seem like a good thing for the province to pony up for. Of course, $13 billion is the surplus we're currently sitting on. I don't know if you know this, but there is a UCP leadership race ongoing. (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah. We're not going to cover it here. But, uh, you know, there are proposals being floated around that do not have anything to do with funding affordable housing or making lives easier for Edmontonians who are living along the poverty line or in houseless states. Uh, So... I can see why this uh, is not getting funded right now politically. I do wonder, I recall a few years ago when the liberal government had just won a landslide election and really wanted to spend on infrastructure and was telling cities, let's get projects ready. And cities were clamoring to get shovel ready projects to get those infrastructure dollars. I do wonder if there's some consideration on the administrative and on council side, looking at the cards and thinking, hmm, you know, there's going to be a provincial election in 2023. Right. Wouldn't it be great if we already had affordable housing units built and ready to go and then a new government could walk right in and fund it? Maybe we should invest hard and prepare for that inevitability. But that might be something that is being thought behind the scenes. 
that sounds awfully strategic <laughs> and uh, <laughs> forward thinking. I wonder if that is the case. I would be surprised, but maybe. <laughs> Sorry to all the planners at the city of Edmonton <laughs> who we have just said cannot be strategic. <laughs> Obviously, I know people at the city are working hard to get this stuff built and will access whatever funding that they can. But, uh, you know, if that turns out to be the case, then maybe it's a, a happy confluence of, uh, of events. So let's talk about a strategy that we've uh, worked hard to build for the past couple of years and now may be on the chopping block. Of course, I am talking about regional transit. We've talked about this on the show several times over the past yep. couple of years. This was, I would say, the baby of former Mayor Don Iveson and former Councillor Michael Walters, who is now the lobbyist for regional transit, uh, lobbying the current council. There was an article published this week that uh, collected some councillor opinions that perhaps were not so excited about the idea of regional transit going forward. Yes, yeah, went to executive committee. And what specifically went to committee was whether or not the city of Edmonton should either invest a little over $7 million to support its part of the regional network or convert you know, some of the existing Edmonton transit service hours to the plan. And executive committee, the councillors ultimately did not forward a recommendation on. So this will go to the full city council next week for a vote. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. But this is all about just phase one of this regional plan. So it's significantly scaled back from what was originally proposed in the business case uh, a number of years ago. Um, but it's you know, the the plan that the Edmonton Metropolitan Transit Service Commission thinks is a reasonable way to get this thing started. It would have 11 regional service routes. We wouldn't be unifying fare structures yet or anything like that. It would start probably next spring or early summer. There could be additional costs, but they're still kind of working all that out. And it seems like not just locally, but elsewhere in the region, this has become a little bit of one of those things where it's like everybody thinks this is a good idea. Everybody agrees this would be good for the region. You know, being able to easily get around the region is a positive thing for labor attraction and retention and economic development and a whole bunch of other things. But nobody seems to want to put in the resources required to make it happen, or at least they're reluctant to do so. Yeah, and of course, those resources can come in multiple forms. They can come from money, actually paying into the system. They can come from loss of autonomy. Uh, of course, the original ambitious regional transit plan would have established a single transit authority. So all of the transit authorities in the region would have had to give up total control of yeah. their routes. That, of course, is not present in the scaled back plan. But that is, of course, the ultimate goal of the Regional Transit Commission. So, you know, there's money, there's autonomy, and there's the cost to service. So, you know, Edmonton is being asked to either pay some money or transfer some route hours to support the region. And I got to say, it's a pretty hard ask for someone living in the city of Edmonton who wants transit to succeed, wants to reduce our car dependency. And we see this endless discussion of, well, council can't start charging for parking until we make the alternatives better because transit just isn't good enough. To suggest that we should reduce some of our inner Edmonton routes to fund regional transit so that the guy in the F-150 in Leduc, who, let's be honest, isn't going to ride the bus anyway, has the option to. 
I don't know how easy that is to sell. Well, especially with this council, many of whom have complained about the bus network redesign and the level of service that we have within Edmonton as it is, right? I think it's a hard pill to swallow to either take even more of that away or to take $7 million, which could be paid to the ETS budget to improve service and give that to this regional uh, service. But again, most people agree that this would be a good thing for the region. Councillor Andrew Knack is one of the people who thinks that it would be a, a positive thing for the economy. And, and he thinks next week, you know, it might be a split vote, but he expects that it'll pass. To reduce our car dependence in the region, we need to start. At some point, someone needs to start doing this. And every year we don't start doing this is another parking lot built, another highway built, another lane expanded. And those infrastructure costs that we don't bat an eye at are very hard to undo. And once they exist, it's very hard to convince the users of those very high quality road infrastructures to switch to transit, which, you know, in this initial plan might be every 20 minutes during peak hours. But maybe every 120 minutes off peak hours and maybe not even on the weekends. Right. We do have to start. I think the argument is just, well, who should pay to start? Should Edmonton be on the hook to say, pretty please, Devin and Leduc, take the bus into the city. Uh, we'll pay for it for you. We've tried that in the past with that carrot and offering better services. And it hasn't really worked. I do wonder if it's time for Edmonton to start pulling out the stick a little bit. I know Don Iveson had talked a little bit callously and a little bit facetiously about charging tolls to people from Sherwood Park right. driving in on uh, 98th Ave. But I think we truly do need to start considering that. And it doesn't have to take the form of tolls, but maybe we should stop subsidizing. Maybe we should stop building and optimizing our traffic flow for people to commute in up the QE2 because we are paying a significant sum of money to make that the most convenient mode of transportation. And maybe if we didn't spend so much money on that, then people in Leduc, on Leduc Council would be like, you know, $3 million to have an Edmonton transit bus route, that's a bargain and we should fund it ourselves. I'm going to take a slightly different approach here. I think, you know, we don't even need to go down the stick road. This is the Edmonton metropolitan region. Edmonton should just step up and make it a no-brainer for the regional municipalities to be a part of this thing. And if that means spending some money to get this thing going, like you said, this is a first step. We have to get started somewhere. I think they should do it. This is a plan that the previous council, this council seems to be mostly in agreement with. They just need to bring the resources to the table to make it happen. And, you know, eventually, who knows, maybe we'll even get Strathcona County interested or some of the other surrounding communities who, you know, eventually left the, the regional transit plan. But, you know, this is about the Edmonton region. Edmonton is the biggest part of the Edmonton region. Let's step up and make it happen. You know, it does make sense. Edmonton should just step up. We have the money. We have the resources. Let's just make a Devon route. Let's just make a Leduc route and run it. But I kind of wonder what's the point of the EMTSC? You know, there's this organization that at one point had ambitions to take over all of the transit routes in the region and do all the planning and now has been significantly scaled back. But we're still paying for a CEO of this organization. We're still paying for the upkeep costs and staff salaries in this organization. And the transit union raised this concern that the EMTSC seemed to suggest, for example, government center as a central transit hub, despite not having public 
bathrooms and despite having some of the fewest numbers of bus stalls in the city. Mm -hmm. It really seems like if we're delivering Edmonton Transit Service, ETS is the best equipped organization to do that. If we're already funding and donating route hours, why do we need the MTSC? Maybe Edmonton <laughs> should just be stepping up and doing it. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the logical thought, you know, process and the logical through line here. I just think it's a it's a matter of stages and what's palatable. And saying ETS is going to run transit for everybody today probably isn't palatable to all of the regional municipalities. But to say that there's this third party commission, it's not everything, but Edmonton's stepping up to fund a big chunk of it. That's a good let's get this going. Once this is going, then we can start to incorporate some of those other things. You know, like when the fare discussion comes up and we say it's ridiculous. We have 11 routes, but we have all these different fare structures. No, we're going to use the ARC pass. It's going to be unified. Maybe we'll even roll it out in Edmonton, Troy. Uh, and, and then <laughs> and then it becomes, you know, okay, this is taken care of. Now it's a little bit more unified. What's the next step? I think eventually you get there to where EMTSC and ETS are are they different? Are they the same? I think they could be. Not to rain on your parade too much, but I can recall that sort of let's do the next thing next was one of our ideas behind transit-oriented development, specifically that we might build an urban low-floor LRT, and that would spur development along the LRT line. And of course, development has been requested along the LRT line. There's a rezoning request for two homes on 138th Street and 102nd Avenue to be demolished and replaced with a six-story apartment. Now, the enterprising speaking municipally listener will say, 138th Street? 102 Avenue? That sounds like Glenora. And if you're thinking, well, there's some opposition to density <laughs> along this LRT line, well, oh boy, gold star for you, listener. Glenora is opposing density. Oh, and they always come up with a new reason, too, which is impressive. So between May and July, the city sought feedback from residents in this neighborhood. They got 70 responses and 59 of those were in opposition. And there's the usual things like impact on nature, apparently, uh, <laughs> traffic, traffic congestion, which we always hear about. There's not enough parking or whatever. Uh, and of course, the big one, this goes against the neighborhood character. Uh, but in Glenora, in this case, there was also this other thing that I'd never heard about before called the Carruthers Caveat Covenant. Say that three times fast. Yeah, of course, Carruthers Caveat is the special thing in Glenora that makes it illegal to build multifamily housing on a vast majority of the lots because Carruthers, the old rich man, was very cranky. <laughs> So apparently this has been used in court before to strike down development and renovations as recently, maybe even as 2013. But the CBC reported it's not really clear whether it had an impact in hindering development aside from that. And it seems like one of those things that the community found out about, latched onto, and now there's some uncertainty about whether the city has to respect that or not, or, or whether this is a provincial thing that we need to get removed. It's just another reason for the community to oppose, which a project which is very aligned with all of our other strategies and goals around city plan, transit-oriented development, and building density in our city, especially along major transit corridors. Of course, the context for the uh, listener who is unfamiliar with Carruthers Caveat, if you recall back when skinny homes were the uh, flavor du jour in the city of Edmonton and how people in Westmount and other neighborhoods were saying no to lot splitting, no, 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 there was a push to get people to install restrictive covenants 
on their deeds. And restrictive covenants are basically a condition on the property deed itself. If you can get an entire section of the neighborhood to add these restrictive covenants that say this land cannot be used for any purpose other than outlined right here, and you get enough neighborhood buy-in, those can be quite painful to remove. It's one mm -hmm. of those things where it's it's very easy to tear something down, but hard to build something up. Restrictive covenants are one of those things where it's like, I'm going to scorch the earth that I live on. And <laughs> Carothers Caveat is one of those legacy restrictive covenants that affects the Glenora area. Now, of course, this is not a surprise. Uh, every time there is development proposed in Glenora, there is always opposition. But like you said, there were 70 residents surveyed. The total number of people voicing opposition to this one six-story apartment building, very gentle density, is 59 people. That's not a lot, Troy. No, it's not. In fact, 59 people could live in one six-story apartment building rather than, you know, the four that might live in the two single-family houses that it would replace along the LRT line. Of course, Councilor Neck has proposed a solution to this specific problem back in March when he made a motion to pursue a DC-1 zoning. That's a direct control. It's a special zoning that says, we're going to do something very specific on this lot, and here's a plan to outline what that specific thing is for this lot. It would allow greater density while, quote, preserving historic buildings, but council voted that down. Yeah, he said it might come up again. I don't actually know how much sense that makes. I suppose if it allows the project to move ahead, then problem solved. But, you know, with the zoning bylaw renewal project and this push to get rid of all of the plethora of zones and the direct control zones and things that we have, it seems like an odd suggestion to me. We should have standard zones that allow us to balance greater density while preserving historic buildings. But, uh, you know, if this is a way to get around a very small amount of opposition to what should be a no-brainer for council, then so be it. Of course, you're right that it isn't a very elegant solution insofar as that it only codifies that Glenora is special. We need a direct control zone to install very light density along a transit-oriented development line. No, the best case scenario is that we just mass rezone everything along the LRT line and maybe everything in the entire city. Maybe we abolish the single family zoning entirely. These are all solutions that we can take and why I'm so excited to see the zoning bylaw renewal and hopefully it prevents discussions like this in the future. But you can bet with West LRT uh, being developed over the next decade and then being deployed and turned on three decades after that, it's a joke because LRT doesn't get built in Edmonton. Haha, <laughs> Valley Line. Uh, Indeed. You know, you can bet that there. this won't be the only opposition towards gentle density and change. But when we're investing in total billions of dollars along this mass transit project, we really need to support the mass in mass transit. For sure. Just like we're supporting the mass in our aggregate recycling facility. <laughs> See that transition right there, Mac? Edmonton City Council, in a bit of a trend for them, has reversed the decision of the previous council and decided to keep our aggregate recycling facility open for now. Yeah, in 2018, council decided as part of bigger discussions about uh, waste management and things that they would close city-operated 
aggregate recycling plan. So this is where you could drop off concrete or asphalt or, you know, stuff from demolition projects that would then be recycled and used in road construction and other things. They decided they'd close the city operated ones in favor of allowing private industry to offer those services. And I understand that uh, earlier this year, city administration finally decided they were going to do that. (laughs) Uh, And they were going to close the aggregate recycling program, which takes in this, you know, construction waste, demolition waste. And now the new council has decided, wait a minute, we want to do a little bit more of a review on that before we go ahead and actually make that happen. I think this is part of a trend of this current council, sort of revisiting previous council's decisions. I think you and I both are on the same page that the previous council is, I would say, timid in some of their decision making. They didn't make the broad, bold moves that a lot of the newcomers on this current council are hoping to impact. And part of that is relitigating some past decisions. Uh, This was one of those. Uh, Regional transit next week will be another. Of course, land development has been one earlier in the term. But I think this is something to keep an eye on. In terms of the aggregate recycling facility, yeah, you know, this is a decision on its own. It's not really much. Um, These kinds of decisions are made all the time. But as a broader story of how this council is treating the past council's legacy, especially as we go into budget, it's a through line to keep in mind of to what extent is this council bound by previous council's decisions. And I think through their actions, we've seen very, very little. Yeah, and I would say generally, council shouldn't be bound by the decisions of previous councils where, where it's possible to make changes without you know, horrible costs or, or anything like that. In this case, it was Councillor Aaron Rutherford who put forward the motion to delay this plan. And the primary reason she cited was about data, actually. She wanted to make sure that they had the data that proves that the city really should get out of the business of doing this aggregate recycling and that it really would be better uh, for the private sector to do that. The city manager of operations, Gord Seabrick, he said that at one point the city was the leader in this, but now you know they're not. They need to invest in the equipment, which is now old, and so that'll cost money, and private companies can do the same level of service or better. So you know that's kind of interesting. Her, her concern is about data. If it means that you know, this becomes more of the way decisions happen, that data is made available and presented as part of the justification before counselors have to ask for more information when these kinds of decisions come up. That could be a good thing. If it goes too far, then, you know, of course, it's really difficult from an administration point of view. You've got direction to go and do something, you go and you make it happen, and then that is all of a sudden paused and you've got to, you know, start over again or or at least, uh, you know, change directions. And that can be you know, I think pretty difficult for administration to have to manage. So, of course, getting to the end point, you know, the worst case scenario of relitigation is Councillor Cartmel saying, let's kibosh in the entire of West LRT and build BRT. That is the area you don't want to go into. That's going a bit too far in being not bound by council's previous decision. This will come back during the budget stuff in November. There should be some data then about the costs of both closing the program and if we were going to keep it open, what that would look like. This decision passed seven to five. The mayor, Councillor Cartmel, Principe Rice, and Hamilton were all opposed to pausing the plan. This episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Life as a business owner can be hectic, to say the least. Alberta Blue Cross understands that. They offer flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. Even better, you can let your staff enroll and manage their coverage at any time and on any device, and that makes life easier for them and for you. You've got this when it comes to group coverage for your small business, and Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. 
To learn more and to explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. And that's all for this week. Barring any severe daycare-based incidents, we will be back (laughs) next week. And we will give you all the sweet tea on regional transit, I assume, and anything else that council decides to talk about. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.